0: Hi we, Hi, we are Distractions Media. 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 Over the past two years, we have raised money for charity during our 24-hour live stream in December, and we are currently preparing to do it again. This year, we're raising money for Anxiety Gaming, a charity that helps gamers and others find assistance for mental health issues including anxiety and depression. Last year, we exceeded our goal and we are looking to do it again. With your help, we're confident that we can do it. You can donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations by clicking on the link. Also, if you want to watch us play games, have fun, and join our growing community, you can come check us out at twitch.tv slash distractions. It all starts at noon Eastern on Saturday, December 2nd. Thank Thank you. 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 Thank you for your wonderful support. Bye. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 65, The Millennial Era. So let's start with a personal discussion. My history background is in social history, specifically religious history. Because of that background, I have a abiding interest in anything to do with religious history. So this is a bit of a, a shall we say, a peak industry for me. <laughs> so with that said, let's move along into the story. In the past, millennialism, the idea that Christ would be returning soon, was a huge one in the Victorian period, and a number of religious organizations came out of the United States during this era. Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Latter-day Saints were formed around this period and on this ideal of a second coming. When we look at this idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ, there has always been a conversation in the Christian communities on when this would occur. Ancient Christians expected it to happen any time. Early church fathers, from Paul to Augustine, were asked the question, when would God return? Paul's advice was wait until, for what he called, the signs. Augustine took a more placid approach when he said, He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms it is far off, nor is it he who says it is near, but rather he who whether it be far off or near, awaits for it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. In the early church, there was a belief that Rome was the devil's tools. But after Constantine, this all changed, and now Rome was the good guy. After the fourth century, the Roman government was seen as a part of the stability of the church and a key to the spread of Christianity. Few could find fault with this argument. In fact, Tertullian, writing in the 3rd century, said of the empire, there is also another greater necessity for our offering prayer in behalf of the emperors, nay, for the complete stability of the empire, and for Roman interests in general, for we know that a mighty shock impending the whole earth, in fact the very end of all things, threatens dreadful woes, is only retarded by the continued existence of the Roman Empire. This idea did not retreat even as the Empire itself broke apart. Gildas, our clarion-collar monk, firmly believed that the people of Britain were being punished by God with the Saxons. He saw them as a just punishment for allowing the Empire to fall, and for being, in his view, backsliders, or people who did not vigorously uphold the faith, were immoral or improper in some way in his viewpoint. Often. Comparisons of the Britons of that day to the Kingdom of Judah, who in the Bible were considered to have forgotten to worship Jehovah, so sealed their own defeat at the hands of Babylon that they it was obvious that it was because of their immoral activities. The British equivalent of the Babylonians, the Saxons, were seen as this just pun- punishment from an angry god, not necessarily a sign of the end of the world. However, Religions the world over are excited by numbers, and the number seven, for example, is seen as lucky. Twelve is considered to be a sign of completeness in Christianity, like the twelve tribes of Israel or the twelve apostles. In Japanese culture, the number four is considered a sign of death, or just unlucky, as was the number thirteen in European cultures, and still is to some extent today. So numbers have meaning. And while some doubt that there was a lot of significance to numbers in the early medieval period, there are scholars who are pushing back against this interpretation. Historian David Knowles in 1962 argued, for example, myth of an apocalyptic year 1000 had been effectively banished from serious historical writing. In other words, there was an understanding in the 20th century from many scholars that the argument over whether or not the year 1000 was significant for most of the people of the middle ages was settled because of the evidence in the writings about the period were not really focused on the magic number many said that this was a later interpretation akin to a fantasy retelling and even more questioned if peasants across europe even knew what the year that was at the time and these scholars were not alone there was many that through the 20th century and even before that doubted that medieval Christians looked upon the year 1000 with any sense of portent. In some ways, it was felt that this was an invention of the Romance scholars, those of the 15th and 16th centuries. And there may be some truth to that, that they went too far. But Victorian and Edwardian scholars, known themselves to be suspect on conclusions they reached in their own era, are likely not to be trusted either. And even as later scholars in the 20th century continue to debate this issue, there is, in some aspects, a sense of, well, we know better. And sometimes it leads to them not looking at the evidence because they think they understand it better. And they look at older scholars as sometimes being of less value because of that. As with many things in history, the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. A peasant living in the village in mid Wales might not might know little about what year it is, but certainly he or she might not be ignorant of the changing of the years and seasons. Measuring time is something that we have done as humans pretty much through all our lives. In Roman times, years were measured in who was consul. In other cultures, it was determined by important events, not dissimilar from how we determined that the year zero is the birth of Christ. Surely any religious person would be curious about how long it had been since their god had come to earth and died. The idea of a second coming and the end of days was an old one in biblical scripture that went back to the earliest collection of the Tanakh by the Jewish rabbis after the return to Babylon. Apocalyptic Jewish writings exist as far back in full form as the era of the first century. The Jewish zealots, for example, looked to the return of the Messiah as a clarion call to defeating the Roman dominion of Judea, and in fact would push that to the point where they were utterly destroyed, and the only survivors from a religious experience in Jewish history at that point were the rabbis from that era. So it makes sense that as one toiled in the fields, fought droughts, floods, overbearing lords, tax collectors, magistrates, spouses, children dying, and so many other horrible and terrible things that would happen in that era, they would look to a better life and a better time with fondness, not with fear. After all, weren't all the meek supposed to inherit the earth? So, for a peasant, maybe uneducated in Latin, but listening to sermons— Viewing the triumph of Christ over the wicked must have seemed like a dream come true. I think there is a misunderstanding that Latin had been the lingua franca of the church. That meant that it was the language of preaching. How would you keep churches full or bring in new converts and provide for those of your flock that might have need if you could not speak in the local tongue? The language of the church was Latin, but the language of the people was Welsh. So for the uneducated Welsh they would be spoken in the medium that they understood. The ordinances were done in magical, holy language of old, but the current everyday talks had to be in Welsh. For Christians of of this time period, there was a lot to see as portents. The annals in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle were filled with comments about moons turning to blood, ravens dying by magic, terrible plagues that covered the land. It was very highly fraught biblical language, which the monks would be accustomed to. Sometimes these end-of-time tips overcame other rather important historical information. Famous king fights a two-year war, which changes the kingdom forever, but hey, look at those ravens. For scholars, these tips and hints and portents are annoying. They get in the way of real history. But for the monks in the 10th century, they were incredibly important. They set the stage for the coming of Christ so actually are in a way more important than the silly experiences of men and women in this life. The life to come meant a tremendous amount to them, enough to sacrifice wealth, possessions, fine bedding, sex, in some cases, good food, and exchanging them for rough lives lived squinting by candlelight at parchment, and working their fingers to the bone in fields, and taking care of sick and elderly. Basically, it was a long, laborious lifestyle that if they took seriously, meant that they had a long, hard road ahead. Now, were there priests who did not do this? Sure. Were they louts, drunks, abusers, deviants, criminals, thugs, and used their office for personal gain in this life? Of course they did. That's humanity. That's the way we are. At the same time, there were a lot of men and women who desperately wanted to do God's work, who believed in what they were doing, who looked forward to the day of the coming of Christ and his rule of the earth. Thus, they truly believed in what they were doing. Thus, they truly sacrificed their own personal welfare to take on this hard, terrible task of being the documenters of history and, being the people that taught the morals, speaking to people and keeping them hopeful of the next life, even as their own lives may have been miserable and terrible. They may have been suffering under the reign of a terrible king. They may have had Viking invasions to deal with. They may have had, you know, a husband or a wife who was miserable to them, who abused them. You know, all of these things that they may have had, including the death of loved ones that probably happened far too often, And so the church was there to offer something for those people. And for the priests and the nuns and the abbotesses and the abbots who looked after all of these things, this was important to them. This was a critical component to them. And like I said, were there people that abused this? Yes, absolutely. There's evidence of it. It's obvious. It makes sense. But at the same time, don't believe that everybody's like that just like you can't believe that everybody who follows a faith is in it for the money. Sometimes they're just in it because they believe in it. And that viewpoint, while not likely pervading all of society, must have influenced some and created an expectation that they were coming to a major milestone. Scholars of the previous century may have viewed the arrival of the end of the world as being something to fear What I'm trying to point out here is it may not be fear that drove people. It may have been hope. It may have been in a belief of a better life in a better existence that was coming. Uh, If we were to look at Victorian America or America in the 1800s, there was, especially in 1844, an idea that the Second Coming was just around the corner. People sold their possessions. They ridded themselves of all their worldly goods And in some cases, certainly not most, and likely not very many, they even went to the bother of going and getting themselves white robes. They stood on hills waiting for the second coming, waiting to be brought up to God and saved from the ills of society. So the fact that there has been this kind of attitude and this thought that there was something better and something greater is not a surprise. And... If you have something like the year 1000 looking you in the face, just like the year 2000 became a big thing for Christians. A lot of Christians believe the year 2000 was the coming of the Messiah, the end of the world. There's probably still people that have calculated, oh, well, it wasn't this. It'll probably be the year 2033, which is, you know, if you're math from the death of Christ would obviously be another possible seminal year or 34 At factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And I would argue you should probably look at this coming again. But the idea that people are driven by hope as much as fear, that people in bad situations, maybe the only way they survive is through their hope. I mean, can you... Imagine how miserable you would be if all you could do is live in fear, if everything was determined by fear. You have to have hope to survive. We have to, as a society, have hope because it gives us the opportunity to continue because you can put up with a lot of garbage if you think, well, it's going to change, it's going to change, it's going to change. So hope would have driven some of these people. And certainly for the monks, that's why their writings and you'll see So often, they get so interested in the signs of the times, as it's called, the evidence of the second coming, that sometimes they skip out on things that actually were a tiny bit more important, (laughs) simply because that was driving their attitude. And you can imagine that invasions by pagan groups that were causing mischief and destroying churches and sacking you know market towns and things would be looked upon as being punishment of god and if you look at the idea that this would be driving your mentality certainly you can see where this would come about and be important and we're going to talk about some evidences from around europe at this time and we're going to specifically talk about a couple of kings who are driving some of this agenda we won't necessarily focus on wales at this point but i think it's an important thing to discuss knowing within the context of Wales, that this was going on, and likely was going on in Wales as much as it was any other place in Europe at this point. If you're believers in Christianity, and you have this idea about numbers being important and significant and lucky and unlucky, the year 1000 is a pretty darn significant year, and can't just be ignored based on the fact that we have an absence of massive amounts of writings talking about how scared they are. In fact, in some ways, You know, people still go living their lives, even if they have a belief in something coming. They're still going to live their lives because you don't know when it's coming. So even if you think, well, it's coming in 1000, you still got a life to live. You still have a family to feed. You still have housing to get. You still have to build your farm. You still have to maintain your lands. So even if you are scared, even if you are frightened, even if you have a massive amount of hope for this new world that's coming, the old world is still very evident, and you still have to deal with the old world. So from that standpoint, that's something we need to keep in perspective, that, that even as we talk about this... So, let's move on. So let's put a little damper on this conversation now. One of the realistic facts is the reason why a lot of academics in the modern era have denied or ignored the evidence of a millennialism in the old world is because of lack of writing. A lack of evidence from the communities. There are some evidences, but they are small. They come from people like Otto III, the Holy Roman Emperor, who, writing in that period of time, writes about apocryphal things. There is discussions in that period about the idea that the last Roman Emperor will come before the Antichrist, and he will be the last great emperor, So there was a lot of mysticism wrapped up in this, a lot of idealism wrapped up in this. And to be fair, every 99 probably had some sense of of foreboding for people. The end of centuries were scary times, and a lot of times things would happen that would make people feel paranoid and concerned. And that's part of the problem that we have here. How do you measure 1,000 as being particularly more scary than, say, 900 or 800 or 500? There really isn't loads of evidence in this way. So why are we talking about this? Well, because even if there isn't loads of evidence, there's enough circumstantial evidence around to say that there is a possibility that we could have people musing on this idea, and we're leading to major developments in the world in this next century. Things that are going to be earth-shattering in how they affect Europe. There will be the invasion of Normans into England. There will be the beginning of the First Crusade. All come in this century, and all of which will have effects on the entire world going forward. We know that for Wales, for example... The year 1000 is a beginning point of a very epic period of time. We go from being fairly well uninformed on the history of the area to getting a lot more documentation, to actually getting biographies, getting a lot of detail about how things are done, how... They develop and administer their kingdoms. We get all of this information that we never used to have. There's this explosion of information now that suddenly comes along. And it's at about the same time that the Viking invasions, which have been terrorizing Europe, are slowly winding down and coming to an end. And really, the last major invasions are done by this point. So we have a period of time which almost looks to be in some cases too good to be true and you can see how people would think could this be the hearkening before you know the calm before the storm the thing that happens before things go really badly i think the contention is effectively is that there is always fears of the antichrist at this point the person who will rule europe with an iron fist who will destroy what God had created, destroy Christianity. And so there was this concept within the church, at least, that this could happen. And amongst those scholars and scholarly uh, nobles, there were concerns about this. There were thoughts about this. Were they as developed as as we've discussed? As I said, likely not. And it's likely not as Dramatically lessened as academics have contended previously. I think we need to land somewhere in the middle on this. The reality of it is is that Christianity was spreading, it was still reaching parts of Europe it hadn't been to yet at this point. And because of this, and because of this reverential zeal that will build about trying to rebuild the old Roman Empire, to, to create that level of protection that Tertullian talks about. There's this concept that we need a holy Roman Empire. Why do we need one? Well, because that gave us peace, that gave us structure. And, of course, a holy Roman Empire would be even better because it would be run by Christianity itself. And, of course, this leads into the idea that not only do we need to take back Europe and take it back into a Christian era, We also start to get a look at other places that were once Christian and start to consider maybe it's time to take those places back and stop them from being lost to us by effectively a new religious organization in Islam, which at this point has been around a few hundred years. But still, by compared to Christianity or Judaism, it's still relatively in its younger stages of growth. And so... There is this sense that they need to take back what is taken from them. And all of this sort of develops in the mindset of these these people around a time period which has significance. And I think that is something that sometimes I think the scholars lose track of, that there may be reasons why this is important. And this may have given people... Second thoughts, especially when, of course, nothing happened. There wasn't a second coming. There wasn't an antichrist, not in the way they kept thinking of them. And so, from a religious perspective, you almost see that as a second chance, a second opportunity. So, if you have, or it can ruin your faith, because if Christ doesn't come when you expected him to, suddenly, you know, you stop believing, you stop holding on to. What were beliefs that made sense to you previously? Because you say, you know, if I can't trust you, then why do I continue to uphold you? Why do I continue to work to develop things for you? And so I think there's that combination of things coming into effect at this stage. And I think we're seeing that as that outgrowth happens. And like I said, for whales, this is largely something on the outskirts of their experience. But yet it will affect whales dramatically going into the next well, at least three centuries, because all of these kind of thinking, philosophies, thoughts, and deeds then make people think, well, then we must take action. And so you get the pressure from the Normans, you get the call to go on crusade, which some of the kings of Wales will do. You will get this sense of religious building, which goes on. You get things like the Cistern Abbeys, which start to get built in Wales during the, a period not long after this. The 12th century will be a very religious century by comparison to previous ones. And it will develop Wales in a way that it wasn't prior to this. There's a lot of things that are going to change dramatically. The old churches, the old rural communal churches that we've seen and talked about previously, will start to dissipate. And so post-millennialism, you have a boom in church worship and in church building. And within it, the church is gaining financial support for its actions, its activities, its calls to arms, and all the while it continues to grab up land, grab up territory, and influence in the rest of Europe. And it's no different in Wales. And we'll see this go on as we go further into this. But keep in mind, this is the era where things start to change dramatically. The Welsh and the ways of doing things in the past starts to shift. And we see a much more reactionary developmental shift that becomes much more built around dealing with the Normans, dealing with the outset of what the Anglo-Saxons got themselves into. And in the meantime the threat of a Viking invasion dissipates. So now you have only really one problem, the Normans, to deal with when they finally come along. And we're going to go into more detail about this in a future episode. Be sure to stick with us for that. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope this was informative. It's a little different from normal. I get that. Um, But I wanted to talk about this a little bit because it's important. I think it's important in order to understand why we go into the post 1000 era, in such a different situation in Wales, in such a different situation in what we understand, what we have, the histories that we have, the information we have. And it'll hopefully give us a much better background on things going forward. Um, and I can't wait for us to continue to talk about this. And and we may do a little bit of backtracking in the next couple of episodes. But after that, we'll move back forward. And we'll start to move into. The next big era of Welsh English conflict, which is of course the Norman era until then, thank you very much for listening. Any comments, concerns please reach me at Welsh history podcast at gmail.com or you can contact me on the Twitter account uh, which is at Welsh History pod or you can come on our Facebook page at uh, facebook.com for such Welsh history podcast send us a message and let me know what you think and and what your thoughts and opinions are about this kind of thing. And finally, I just wanted to once again give a bit of a plug to our live stream which is coming up next month or yeah, next month and is actually just barely under a month left for it. It is a really amazing charity we're working for anxiety gaming. Next week we're going to be publishing an episode with the founder of anxiety gaming talking a little bit about uh, the role of the organization, giving us a bit of background and hopefully some insight into why we're fundraising for them. And I hope you'll consider fun- donating to this cause because I think it's important. I think mental health issues are something that a lot of people don't realize how bad they are and how tough it is for people to deal with them. They're kind of silent. They're not obvious. A lot of people can act totally normal and yet have mental problems that you just don't see because you don't see them every single moment of the day and you can't see inside their heads so we feel strongly that this is a great charity i really hope you'll consider it Um, my hope is in the next little while that you'll donate to the cause so that we can reach our goal this year which is two thousand dollars Currently, as of this recording session, uh, we are at $800, and I would love for us to get to 1000 before the end of next week so that we're going into basically most of November trying to build on the last half. And any donation is appreciated, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time for this podcast, and we'll talk to you later. Take care, everybody. Bye! Edge of the Abyss Creations is a proud sponsor of the Welsh History Podcast. Your one-stop shop for unique jewelry, paintings, and other crafty creations. You can find us at facebook.com/slash Edge of the Abyss One. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com.